Hello everybody, this is Griffin Bridgers. Welcome back to my monthly estate planning update. I first have some exciting news for all of you. Uh, I've been doing this for four months now and have continuously alluded to the fact that there would be exciting things in the works for this uh, monthly teleconference. And after some deliberation and speaking with various audience members, I have come to the conclusion that I am going to begin offering it in a podcast format. So tentatively, the name of the podcast will just be State of Estates. And it will be offered initially on Soundcast and on iTunes. So after this, I will circulate an email separately that will give you the details on when and where you can download the episodes of the podcast. But for those of you who enjoy listening in on the teleconference, I am not going to stop doing so. Uh, I've always debated what's the incentive to, to actually call into the teleconference instead of listening to a recording after the fact. And I've come to the conclusion that there's an element of mystery that I'm going to involve in the teleconference in the future, where uh, if you like to be surprised, I'm not going to release the topic for each month's talk in advance. Instead, I am always going to record it uh, on the second Tuesday of each month, and the topic will be released at that time, and the podcast on that topic will be offered after the fact. But for those of you who want to participate, you can have a first crack at things by calling into the traditional conference number that I have offered and participating uh in, in, in exchange for that, I guess, the best way to think of it is uh, I can answer questions if you have them in the, in the live teleconference and also if you have questions uh, after the fact uh, or ones that you want to float in general, I can always do a, a general Q&A type of thing where I answer those questions on the podcast as well. But either way, I will send an email after today with the links to that and talk about more of the formatting changes. So I appreciate all of you tuning in and uh, as, as my guinea pig audience, and I look forward to this next phase uh, that will allow me to promote this talk a little bit better each month. But for this month, I briefly mentioned on last month's call that we would be covering marital agreements. So marital agreements are intended to allow you to define property rights uh, in the event of marriage. So the most common example of this is a prenuptial agreement. So these types of agreements are very misunderstood, and I thought it would be helpful to have a talk on when you use them and how you use them and the general requirements for this type of an agreement. Now, the common Hollywood portrayal of a prenuptial agreement is maybe son-in-law is marrying into a rich family and future father-in-law takes the son-in-law out on a boat or something and says, hey, uh, on the eve of this marriage, you better sign this prenuptial agreement or I guarantee you're not going to marry my daughter. And then they sign it and if they divorce in the future, the, the divorcing son-in-law gets none of the family's money and the, everyone goes about their own separate lives and uh, maybe lives happily ever, maybe happily ever after maybe they don't but it's uh 
one of those where the circumstances tend to indicate that this is rarely the idea of the couple uh, to enter into the prenuptial agreement. Outside of the Hollywood story, there's a lot of stigma that involves these types of agreements where if you even propose the idea to your spouse, especially in a first marriage, that uh, you run the risk that they are going to react less than favorably to the proposal that there be a prenup. So that, that being said, I think it's better now to look at the general requirements of when you do this. Now, prenuptial, the term, it, it implies that it's entered into before the marriage, but you can also do one of these after you're married uh, under the laws of most states. So what a prenuptial or postnuptial agreement does, post is after marriage, is it allows you to define any number of property rights within the marriage. So the most common examples dictate what happens at the termination of marriage. Now marriage can terminate in two ways, divorce or death. So in either case you're going to define the rights of each party but Divorce is easy and is often fully addressed in a prenuptial agreement, but as an estate planning attorney, I often see the pitfalls with not giving enough attention to the provisions dealing with a termination of marriage due to death. And I'll touch on some of those pitfalls here in a minute, but when I say that you're defining property rights in a prenuptial agreement, there's any number of things that could come into play. One is how property is split up, whether it's defined as being separately owned by each spouse or whether there's any property that could be treated as jointly owned or marital property that could potentially be split up by a divorce court or that everyone just agrees that certain types of property will be marital property and will be split 50-50 regardless of what a divorce court says. Another common term is defining alimony or separate maintenance, where if one spouse is the breadwinner spouse, they may be obligated to support the other for a certain term of years or up until remarriage uh, in the event of a divorce. The one thing that in a prenuptial agreement cannot do is govern child support. Child support payments are typically determined at the state level based on income and they're not going to allow parties to separately contract to leave a child destitute at the end of the day. So the concept of destitution creates a good segue into our next point as what are, what are the requirements of a marital agreement? Now the first is that it has to be fair and not unconscionable unconscionable. Now, what that term means is that it can't be so one-sided that it leaves one spouse super rich and the other one absolutely destitute. So, a court will typically look at the terms of the prenuptial agreement to determine whether or not they were fair at the time that it was signed. So, if one party is a millionaire and the parties contract that the non-millionaire spouse gets nothing in a divorce, gets no alimony or anything, it's likely that a court is going to strike it down at some point in the future. 
another requirement that goes back to our initial story of the father-in-law and the son-in-law on a boat is that the agreement cannot be entered into under duress. So the more time that can elapse between when the agreement is signed and the actual marriage, the better. There can't be any circumstances that show that either party was pressured to enter into this agreement uh, in hopes of convincing them to go forth with the marriage or anything like that. So if you approach your spouse the night before a marriage and say, hey, you better sign this or I'm going to leave you on the altar tomorrow, then a court is likely to argue that the agreement was entered into under duress. Another common unknown requirement is that there has to be a full and fair disclosure of both assets and income. Now, the scope of the full and fair disclosure uh, kind of varies, and this is one of those areas where early on in my career I feel like I did a lot of very poor prenuptial agreements because I would do a general one-page balance sheet of what each couple had in terms of assets and income, but there's a lot more depth to this if you really go into it. This requires, you know, full and fair disclosure of every single possible economic circumstance that could benefit a spouse. So that could include future inheritances they might receive, trusts they might be beneficiaries of, uh, maybe other income that could be hidden or what couldn't be easily discovered. Uh, it could also include ownership interests in LLCs or partnerships where maybe there's a K-1 that doesn't indicate that any income is coming in, but maybe an IPO has been planned for you know that, that investment security. So it's potential value in the future is much greater than it is on the date of the marriage. So things like that have to be disclosed, and if they're not, you run the risk that the prenuptial agreement could be invalidated at some point in the future. And then the last or common requirement really ties into the duress and time pressure type of uh, talk I gave a minute ago, and that is that each spouse has to have the opportunity to review the pre prenuptial agreement with their own independent attorney. So in estate planning, a lot of times an attorney will represent a couple together uh, with each spouse signing an agreement recognizing that there could be conflicts of interest in the future. But with a prenuptial agreement, typically in order for it to not be contested in the future, it's a good idea that an attorney only represent one spouse, even though maybe both spouses are going to be represented after marriage for estate planning. And with that being said, the attorney or the spouse who is not represented by that estate planning attorney should get their own separate representation and there should be an opportunity for both spouses attorneys to kind of go back and forth and negotiate potential problem terms and come to an agreement on those before the prenuptial agreement is signed and if you go through that process there's less of a, a risk that the prenuptial agreement will be shot down now in Colorado in particular there are uh, provisions of our marital agreement act that say it isn't necessarily fatal if you don't have both spouses represented by an attorney, but there has to be enough of an opportunity for both to be represented by an attorney uh, that the choice to not be represented can be shown to be intentional uh, and not by 
pressure of time or by economic circumstance. So uh, because of that, if you don't have a spouse who is represented, typically at the end of the prenuptial agreement, they have to specifically go through an initial and sign statements that specifically say, I had the opportunity to seek independent counsel, and I purposely and intentionally waived that opportunity, and I recognize the significance of that. So as long as you kind of have that type of a statement specifically signed and initialed by a spouse who was not represented by an attorney, then the lack of independent representation of both spouses wouldn't necessarily be fatal to the prenuptial agreement and its validity if later contested in a divorce court. Now one issue that comes up, I mentioned briefly earlier that the prenuptial agreement dictates potentially how property is distributed at death. So there's a couple nuances to this. One is that married couples have the advantage of certain state rights that make sure that one spouse is not left destitute upon the death of the other. So in most states, there's either community property rights or an elective share that allows a spouse who's essentially disinherited under a will or under you know the general estate plan to receive at least a percent, up to typically 50% of the deceased spouse's estate, including other things that might not be distributed under a will, such as life insurance, retirement plan so on and so forth. That's known as the augmented estate. You can specifically waive the right to receive an elective share or waive community property rights in a prenuptial agreement, and that prevents a spouse from inheriting under those state law rights and allows them to be waived. Uh, in addition, a spouse can waive their right to receive an, an intestate share of the deceased's estate. So if, say, the decedent omitted their spouse from their estate plan and didn't include a statement that it was intentional, um, then the spouse could potentially contest a will and receive the share that they would have received under the state's intestacy laws, um, which could give them a greater benefit potentially than elective share rights or uh, community property laws. Uh, intestacy rights can also be waived, and in addition to that, there are several other little benefits a spouse can receive, such as a family allowance during the period of probate administration or uh, exempt property allowances, homestead exemptions, so on and so forth. All of those can be waived under a prenuptial agreement. Now, where things get tricky is that most prenuptial agreements will have a clause that says, notwithstanding this waiver, each spouse can independently create their own estate plan that can provide for the other. And they're free to do that, and they're free to change that plan at any time. And just because they elect maybe through a will or through a trust to provide for their spouse doesn't mean that the terms of the prenuptial agreement are going to be waived. That's all fine and good. It gives the parties freedom to contract and make gifts to each other and you know provide for each other at death. Um, but where things come... I guess become very hairy is when you have a divorce pending at the time of death. So let's say a couple intends to divorce, maybe they, they file in the court and start the process, and in the meantime, one spouse is killed in a car accident. And 
the divorce has commenced but has not been finalized and that deceased spouse has in place a will and maybe beneficiary designations that leave property to the surviving spouse uh, even though divorce is intended. Under a lot of states' laws, that will and that beneficiary designation would still be active and enforceable even though a divorce is pending. Uh, so if the deceased spouse didn't get around to changing those documents, then potentially they could allow the surviving spouse to benefit even though there was no intent through divorce to allow them to benefit. So. What this gets around is a state law that says that wills and beneficiary designations are active until the couple's divorce is finalized, at which point um, each spouse would be treated as having predeceased the other for purposes of uh, their estate plan. So while the divorce is pending, it's helpful to have terms in the prenuptial agreement that specifically say that, hey, if either of us has filed a decree for divorce at the time of death or is legally separated or anything like that, um, any action that starts the divorce process but fall, falls short of the entry of a final decree of divorce, then we're still going to waive the right to inherit from each other under estate planning documents, maybe that were created before we entered into the divorce. Now, it's still possible that they could keep those documents active and maybe change them after the divorce had been commenced, uh, and, and they're free to do that as well. Essentially, you're free to leave property to whomever you want in your estate plan. Really, what we're, what we're avoiding here is the application of uh, that statute that says estate plans for each other are active until the divorce is finalized and you're really addressing what happens in that interim period and that doesn't that that issue isn't unique just to prenuptial agreements i've seen a lot of divorce attorneys create separation agreements that leave that issue open as well and i've even litigated this issue uh, with you know a couple married couples that uh, had one who died while the divorce is pending and it can be very difficult to get around that when the uh, separation agreement or prenuptial agreement is silent on that issue but that being said just remember the general takeaways here are with a prenuptial agreement you can provide for property rights and alimony at the termination of the marriage either by divorce or by death or otherwise the general requirements are that the terms have to be fair and not unconscionable. The agreement can't be entered into under duress. There has to be a full and fair disclosure of each spouse's assets and income. And each spouse has to have a meaningful opportunity to be represented by their own independent counsel. Now that we've touched on that, one common issue that isn't addressed oftentimes is the possibility of common law marriage. Now there's not many states that recognize common law marriage. I think, don't quote me on this, that there are about seven that do, but the issue is close to my heart because in Colorado we do recognize common law marriages. So what a common law marriage is, is one where a couple has been together for a certain period of time and met certain requirements, uh, but maybe does not have an actual solemnized marriage where they've stood before a justice of the peace or um, a minister and taken the vows and signed an actual marriage license and marriage certificate. 
So a common law marriage typically is commenced when two circumstances are met. One, the couple is living together, cohabitation, and two, when the couple holds themselves out to the general public, friends, family, whomever, as being married. If you meet both of those requirements, potentially one or the other could make a claim that there was a common law marriage if their relationship later terminates. And the significance of that is that if there is indeed a common law marriage, you can't make a, a clean break from each other. So if you decide to break up, uh, that's essentially going to be treated the same as a divorce. Or upon the death of one spouse, the other could potentially have claims against the estate that would be the type of claims that a spouse would typically have as opposed to uh, just kind of being you know left you know high and dry with nothing to be received under a will or beneficiary designations or otherwise but one interesting note is that even though not every state recognizes common law marriage it is possible if you have a client who lived in a common law marriage with their significant other at one point that if they move to a state that doesn't have common law marriage, that state may still recognize a common law marriage entered into validly in another state. So uh, just moving doesn't take away the possibility of common law marriage. So the most common way to avoid a common law marriage is to have an agreement where the couple states affirmatively that they do not want to be treated as being married under common law. And the type of agreement we usually prepare to do that is what's known as a cohabitation agreement. The reason it's called that is because that first requirement, cohabitation, is one of the main elements in determining a common law marriage. So if you have a couple who is moving in together uh, who has no intent to get married in any reasonable amount of time after moving in together, we would typically recommend a cohabitation agreement at that point. Now, the cohabitation agreement isn't as litigated as a prenuptial agreement, but we generally recommend that it have the same terms as a valid prenuptial agreement, uh, not being unconscionable, not being entered into under duress, having a full and fair disclosure of assets and income, and the opportunity for each uh, partner to be represented by their own independent counsel in reviewing and negotiating the cohabitation agreement. Now, in addition to those requirements, typically it's helpful to have some statement within the cohabitation agreement itself that says that the couple has no present intent to get married now or in the future. And by having that, along with a statement that there is no other types of consideration for the uh, the cohabitation arrangement, uh, i.e. sexual relations, then the cohabitation agreement will be valid and will prevent the couple from um, being able to have common law marriage applied in the future if they break up or if one of them dies. So that being said, one issue that has escaped a lot of people's radars, uh, which is related to both cohabitation agreements and prenuptial agreements, is in the recent Tax Act of 2017, formerly alimony was deductible to the paying uh, former spouse, 
and as a result was included in the income of the recipient spouse. However, the Tax Act has changed that where alimony is no longer deductible but is also no longer includable in gross income. So that applies to any agreement regarding alimony that's entered into or modified on or after December 31 of 2018. So even though the Tax Act was effective in 2017, you can still change or create prenuptial agreements this year that uh, would allow alimony to be deductible and included in income of the recipient. However, after the end of this year, that tax rule will no longer apply. So the significance to this is that if you have a client who divorces after 2018 or uh, creates or modifies a prenuptial agreement or divorce settlement agreement after 2018, then that will change the taxation of alimony. The significance is that this really kind of shifts how property is divided. It used to be that um, at least one spouse had an incentive to convert part or all of what might be a property settlement, which is typically received tax-free, into alimony so that the paying spouse could get some sort of income tax benefit through that deduction. Now, with the loss of that deduction, obviously, some types of arrangements that made economic sense due to the tax benefit previously will no longer make sense after 2018. So uh, keep that in mind if you have couples who uh, are on the verge of divorce or who have a prenuptial agreement who, that they want to enter into uh, or change that it may be a good idea to make sure those changes or terms are set in stone this year and not modified after this year if that tax benefit wants to be retained. Okay, that is it on marital agreements and marriage. I hope everyone uh, got a lot out of this talk. I apologize for the confusion in getting this talk sent out for this month. I didn't get a chance to circulate an email uh, pitching it but you'll receive an email after the fact with the news about this podcast. Remember that tentatively it's going to be called State of Estates. Uh, if you don't like the name, um, I'm sorry, that's kind of the best I could come up with. It's not already taken elsewhere. But if you have any questions on this topic outside of today's podcast, please feel free to email me or call me. And then I look forward to seeing you next month. If you choose to participate in the teleconference, it will, as usual, occur on the second Tuesday of the month. But I will no longer advertise that. Uh, but after the fact, you can receive a recording of the podcast. Thanks again, everybody, and I hope you have a great rest of your day.